Coca, su naray, su naray en ti. 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 Welcome to the very first episode of the Mango TV podcast. Rory's powers join us today. We wanted to bring you this conversation with Rory for episode one because he encapsulates all of Mango TV's themes through his work as a writer, campaigner, and event curator. He's been specializing in ecological and consciousness issues for over 25 years, and he's always working towards a change in systems. Today, we dive into regenerative agriculture, food health, the current paradigm, and a possible shift in paradigm and the wider theme of psychedelics and the community they create. Rory is a close friend and contributor to Mango TV. If you have not been to our platform yet and you enjoyed today's episode, please hit subscribe and head over to our library of documentaries and see what else we have to offer. But first, we begin with Rory's powers. Rory, welcome to today's show. Thank you, Giancarlo, and thank you so much for inviting me to join you for the first of these. So why don't we start about the challenges of current paradigm? Why do you think we have a problem? I suppose for me, it goes right back to when I was 18 and I was lucky enough to go traveling in, in India and, and Southeast Asia. And then a few years later, when I left university, I cycled the length of Africa with, with some friends and wrote my first book. And those two trips forced me to reevaluate my notions around progress and development and all of these things that we've been sort of conditioned and educated to believe in. And I suppose what ultimately that led to was trying to work out what it was that had led a supposedly intelligent species so far down the road of destroying the very systems that support biological life and, 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 uh, and our species as well. So, and ultimately, of course, the ecological crisis, I would say, is an extension of a much deeper ideological crisis, and that is what's been my fascination. And ultimately, what we, when we refer to scientific paradigms, I think what we, we, what we're sort of fed at the moment in terms of we must follow the science and listen to the science, etc. Well, sure, but the science we're being told to follow is a particular type of science. It's a particular methodology and approach to science, which is known as materialism or reductionism. And essentially what it's doing is trying to explain the world by reducing it to its component parts. And it's this notion of the sort of clockwork Newtonian universe and that anything that can't be empirically quantified and measured is removed from the equation because it's dismissed as not being relevant. Absolutely. This is very clear to me also. But so what can be practical example where this type of methodology of reductionism, of linear solution to complex problem is clearly not working? Well, I think Goethe, the German polymath hundreds of years ago, said that this was when true science, we first deviated from true science because we took living biological cells out of their living context and studied them in isolation. Now, of course, this opens up all sorts of fascinating avenues and has led to all sorts of incredible 
breakthroughs medically uh, scientifically on a number of levels but of course the characteristics that a, a cell in isolation from its original context exhibits are very different to what it might exhibit in its biological domain so we've I would say that in a nutshell, we're taking complex biological systems and reducing them to and making some rather simplistic and potentially erroneous conclusions as a consequence. And a good example, I think, is, is what we've done to, to topsoil. And we got so carried away with the, the, the excitement of, of, of the chemical industry, better living through chemistry and this notion that somehow we were going to conquer and control nature using this arsenal of, of, of toxic compounds. But of course, what we've done in the process is completely toxify our environment and everything within it, including ourselves. And I mean, only recently did I discover that the degree to which DDT, and just how big a problem this was before it was banned. And they did realise that if this was left unchecked, it was really going to decimate the global ecology. But of course, only sort of two years before that, people from chemical companies were drinking DDT on camera to sort of try and prove how safe they thought it was. So other examples, we, we've, it's led to some very sort of simplistic and erroneous conclusions about nutrition and diet. We were told that saturated fat for decades was the real culprit. And now we know that certain saturated fats are absolutely essential for optimal health. We were told that we should use all of these hydrogenated cooking oils, which we now know to be probably you know, the most toxic thing we can put in our diets of all. Antibiotics, of course, an incredible development. But of course, because it's the one of the only tools in the cupboard for addressing complex systemic chronic diseases, we've relied on them too much and created MRSA. This paradigm needs an enemy. So we made an enemy out of bacteria. We now know, of course, that that led to sort of over-sterilization of the home environment. It's implicated in rising asthma rates and all these things. And I think we might potentially be making some similar erroneous conclusions about viruses now, but that's, that's something for another time. So in, in essence, this paradigm doesn't like to deal with complexity and uncertainty. And biological life is very, very complex and uncertain. And we can talk a bit later about the left-right brain hypothesis, but again, I think that's quite a useful lens for understanding it, this, because this very masculine, analytical, rational, left-brain way of processing information is very much at the crux of this scientific paradigm and at the expense of this more intuitive feminine right brain that is looking much more at context rather than content. Yes, basically science is not a database that holds the truth, it's a process. And how science radically changed when they discovered telescope, now science is changing as we create more and more powerful microscope. But so, more specifically, how does, you mentioned topsoil, how does a tomato coming from a monoculture farm different in nature and different in its impact to us than a tomato that comes from a biodiverse permaculture farm? Yes, great question. I suppose one way of looking at this is the 
what we understand about topsoil now compared to just 30 years ago is, is really redefining so much and uh, certainly redefining our understanding of soil carbon and the ability for photosynthesis to draw carbon down from the atmosphere and, and put it back into the soil. But also the 84 trace minerals that should be in healthy topsoil we've reduced as three primary applications of, of nitrogen, potassium and, and phosphorus at the expense of 81 other trace minerals. So something grown in topsoil that is devoid of all of this biological life, and let's bear, one teaspoon of topsoil is thought to contain more microorganisms than all the human beings that ever lived. Now, this is one of these unbelievably extraordinary statistics, but when that sort of complexity is there, you can see that, that a plant growing in soil with that sort of thriving biota, which also increases the metabolism of all of these nutrients within the soil and within the plant. Also, when you've used multiple applications, not just fertilizers, but insecticides and pesticides, fungicides, etc., you're constantly killing all of microbial life and it's this microbial life whether it's in our microbiomes or even in the oceans that is really the immune system for the human being in the case of the microbiome but also the immune system for, for Gaia yeah James Lovelock originated the Gaia theory a lot of his research was around the role that microorganisms played within the oceans but also on land in terms of modulating local climate and performing these self-regulating actions. But of course, as we deplete all of that, the ability, whether it's depleting the microbiome and our own 80% of our immune systems is dependent on that. And likewise, we've vilified carbon in the way we vilified bacteria, we're now vilifying viruses, or we vilified saturated fat. But carbon, of course, is the basic building block of all organic life. The problem is where we've put it <laughs> and what nature's taken a million years to safely sequester into the Earth's crust, we're putting up in the atmosphere in the course of a year. So it's the amplification, you know, because of our technologies, this is one of the ways we've stepped outside of the system because the rate at which we can interfere with these processes is so amplified compared to any other species and natural planetary evolution can't keep up with it. And in the process, we become the only species to generate waste. This is very interesting. I, I wonder when I hear you talking, it seems that there is more and more scientific paper, more and more experts like Zach Bush, for example, who have made very compelling cases that not only, you know, the tomato from the monoculture farm deplete your microbiota, but a tomato from a permaculture biodiverse environment has all the macronutrients that boost your immune system through the microbiota. This is a knowledge which seems to be emerging, but how do you think we're going to be able to implement it? What is the disconnect? You know, there is this almost a scientific consensus around that, but what, what are the practical things that we can do to help this biodiverse revolution on, in agriculture? Very interesting question, and I think it's very fascinating to look at how do scientific paradigms change. I suppose the really significant 
one we often go back to is, is Galileo and the Copernican revolution, basically completely redefining our un collective understanding of our position within the universe. But of course, it took a long time for that paradigm to shift and enough, you know, after enough number of influential, important people looked through the telescope and realized that actually he was onto something. So eventually the weight of empirical evidence becomes so great that it's impossible for the prevailing paradigm not to go through some kind of shift to integrate that. What I think is very alarming right now, and a lot of people refer to this dominant scientific ideology now as scientism, because it has essentially replaced religion as our core belief system. So we turn to this particular approach to science as being our source of truth. But of course, true science is constantly evolving and constantly updating and constantly integrating the new insights. And so the electron microscopy of the last few decades has opened up all these incredible new domains around our understanding of soil biology, the microbiome, epigenetics, neuroplasticity, all of these incredibly exciting emerging sciences, which really challenge some fundamental assumptions within the scientism paradigm. And that is why this is terribly alarming, because these Galileos of our type are now starting to get vilified as being anti-science or quacks and pseudoscientists. So anything that deviates or challenges this dominant ideology is now being regarded as extremist and dangerous. And this is very, very worrying because, of course, this dominant scientific ideology is being used as the underpinning for very powerful political and economic forces, which are now changing our world so incredibly rapidly. Yes, I hear you. In scientific circle, they say that the only way to change a paradigm is when all the scientists of the old paradigm die. <laughs> but I have to say, in my lifetime, talking about scientific paradigm change, I remember looking at psychedelics like magic mushroom, ayahuasca, mescaline, the family of the tryptamines. 20 years ago, the research was completely shut from, from the 60s, the 70s, and the current paradigm felt that this compound had no medical value. They were actually schedule one, like heroin. And But I've seen in, in the last 20, 15 years, some brave scientists risking their career, applying for grant, receiving grant, and, and then also, of course, science with the discovery of a functional MRI now have proven that this compound, not only they, are, they have medical value, but they can be the future for psychiatry, like the New York Times title like a week ago. And so since we are in talking about psychedelics, can you, what was your experience with this compound? What is the link between this medicine and what they call biophilia, this deep connection with nature? I think that biophilia is this term coined by the biologist E.O. Wilson to describe this sort of innate a sense of connection to the natural world, which I'd say is the thing that we've really lost as a species so dramatically and which we so urgently need to, to regain if we're going to have a chance of, of getting out of the pickle we've made for ourselves. And of course, there's ever-increasing evidence now that the, the role that these plants and substances have played through millennia 
the origin of all the world's religions from the Hindu Vedas onwards. But often in the contemporary discussion around psychedelics, quite understandably, the focus is on their medical application in terms of dealing with depression and addiction and and these incredibly important issues. And I wholeheartedly endorse that and, and can see how miraculous these compounds can be. Of course, the interesting thing is the prevailing forces within the sort of medical establishment are not necessarily very keen on a substance that makes you well after one dose <laughs> rather than taking a pill for the rest of your life. But that's a whole another discussion. But seeing how the, the dominant paradigm co-ops and integrates some of these things and then subverts them. For me personally, I suppose that the defining characteristic of my early psychedelic experiences was this reframing of my understanding of consciousness, that consciousness may actually be primary rather than secondary, i.e. we are so conditioned to believe that consciousness is this emergent property of what people call an epiphenomenon of the brain, that somehow complex neuronal firing inside our skulls produces consciousness, rather than the possibility that the extraordinary complexity of the human brain is the most sophisticated biological instrument on the planet through which a more universal consciousness functions. And this was Aldous Huxley's great fascination too, and he wrote this book called The Perennial Philosophy in 1945, trying to hone down on what was this single strand of, of sacred truth that ran through all the world's mystical and religious traditions. And ultimately, I think yeah, it comes down to this, what's now referred to collectively as, as the non-duality teachings uh, or the perennial philosophy. And it's particularly aligned in the modern spiritual marketplace, as it were, with Advaita Vedanta, which is the ancient Vedic Indian tradition, but it's also there in Zen Buddhism. It's there in the Old and New Testament. I am that I am, and be still and know that I am God, all of these insights. So essentially, I think what psychedelics can do is, is because of this extraordinary sort of neural connectivity they promote and the suppression of what the scientists now call the default mode network, which is really this fancy scientific term, I would say, for the egoic construct. So we've made this individual identification with consciousness and created these separate identities at the obfuscation or you know, without recognizing that what is behind that or what is prior to that is this oneness, this pure awareness. So as soon as language comes into the equation, as soon as the mind comes in, it becomes dualistic because the mind only operates. Dualism is an incredibly important construct for us to make sense of the world, but we fail to look at what precedes that. And then we end up in these interminable mental ramblings using the language of tunus to understand oneness, which it simply can't do. And that, of course, that leads to all sorts of cognitive dissonance within the, this kind of area. So I think what's so come into focus for me in the last year with all of the confusion we feel about what's going on in the world is that looked at through different lenses, 
things that can appear to be completely contrasting can actually both be true at the same time. It just depends on the lens. The physicist Niels Bohr, I think, said yeah, the opposite of one great truth is often another great truth. And Scott Fitzgerald, the, the writer, said the definition of a real artist was being able to hold two completely opposing points of view at the same time. And I think a lot of the confusion and dissonance that people feel at the moment is that we are encouraged to look at everything through the same lens, forgetting that actually you can look at what's going on through an esoteric lens, through a reductionist lens, through a holistic lens, through a metaphysical lens. And all of these things are valuable, but they might appear to be extremely dissonant when arranged together. And the, the model I like to use to, to, to really illustrate this is the square or the cube. Now, if you're, if you're looking at a square in, in two dimensions or in front of you, it looks like a square. But of course, if it's actually a cube in three dimensions and you move through 45 degrees to a different part of the room, you recognize that what you thought was a square is actually a cube. Now, it doesn't mean that it's still not a square when you look at it from over there. But once you've seen that it's a cube, you have a more evolved and integrated understanding. Many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware of Ken Wilber's work, the transpersonal psychologist, and he has written voluminously about this sort of spectrum of consciousness or the evolution of consciousness. And I suppose from a sort of purely non-dualistic lens, you'd have to say the apparent evolution within consciousness. But the single defining feature of all of those evolutionary stages is the integration and transcendence of that which came before. And for me, I think this is the sort of, from a sort of, through a metaphysical lens, the really exciting thing, that process we're in now, where the next Wilbur's projection is that the next stage in the evolution is to this transpersonal, non-dual perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that we all sort of disappear in a sort of oneness, sort of nothingness. I think it's just this recognition of seeing the cube as a cube rather than just as a square. We cover a lot of ground now in the last few minutes. Um, just want to maybe clarify or just repeat, how did we go from psychedelics and the full mode network into the perennial philosophy and the need to transcendence. And I want to quote Michael Pollan on his book. He talks that the full mode network is a circuitry in the brain, which is three key areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the middle cortex, and the thalamus, I think, that basically are hubs from other parts of the brain. And what happens when you ingest these tryptamines you reduce the blood supply in those areas. And Michael Pollan used this example. It says like this circuitry is like the director of the orchestra of your brain. And with less blood supply, the director sort of gets subdued, like goes to bed. And so for the first time, your brain is not coordinated, but what can be called the egoic brain. And in that anarchy, if you want, can emerge part of who you are that were not you were not aware of, that where you can go behind the conceptual and the thinking mind that prevent the transcendence. And I think this is important because 
there is part of our existence which cannot be understood through reason. I think that the, in the Enlightenment, the, the, the sovereignty of reason was important to get out of the Middle Age view of superstition and, and it was very important. But I feel now if we want to make sense of the world, how we want to live in the world, I think it's important to try to explore this non-dual approach to, to life. Anyhow, there are complicated topics that we will explore further. Maybe, would you like to cover, to talk about Ramana Maharshi a little bit? That would be, for me, the, the closest spiritual teacher that explained this non-dual philosophy. Sure. Ramana Maharshi uh, was a great Indian sage, died in 1950, and was very much aligned with this Advaita Vedanta philosophy, and lived in South India. What was very extraordinary about Ramana was he had no spiritual inclinations at all and had this spontaneous enlightenment liberation when he was a schoolboy and was then silent for many years and then eventually people started to sort of gather around him and he was visited by the, the great and the good from across the globe until 1950. But he was also, I suppose accredited as being at the top of the sort of lineages of many of the modern Advaita teachers. And most of what people refer to as Neo-Advaita now, a lot of the modern teachers say, well, there is no practice and there is no, there's nothing that you could do to bring this about because the you that's trying to bring it about is the very thing that needs to disappear. Uh, but Ramana did have did promote a, a technique which he called vichara or self-inquiry and it was really this internal examination of asking you know, who am I not to be repeated just mindlessly like a sort of internal mantra but actively pursued as, a, as an intellectual inquiry because of course the when we go in search of any evidence of this individual egoic entity we just can't find it it, it, it's really just a, a construct and I suppose going back to what you were saying I know I didn't properly answer the, the biophilia aspect but I think the the problem well the, the thing we're trying to transcend is this we're so identified with this three-dimensional body-mind organism and believe so vehemently that that is all that we are whereas what these teachings are pointing to is what is it that precedes that? What the Zen talks about what was the original face, or who were you before you were given a name, or before you were even born, or where are you in deep and dreamless sleep? So this is what's the I suppose the sort of the divide, sort of tragic irony, I suppose, of, of a lot of this the, the, the seeking for this mysterious enlightenment can take usually takes people through years and years of agonizing spiritual search of multiple teachers and meditations and you know all sorts of different techniques often to find that these are the very things preventing the very thing they're looking for from happening so it's you mentioned the thinking mind and the the thinking mind within the, the these teachings is yes this egoic conceptualizing mind it's the source of all negative human emotion it's the 
anxiety and fear about projection into the future. It's guilt and suffering about the past. And it's that which is constantly removing us from sort of pure presence of, of, of here and now. But I think often people extrapolate that onto the stage of the sage is to think the sage is just like a sort of bit of blancmange, is sort of completely sort of without personality and attributes and the rest of it. In fact, so the working mind is always there. If, if a sage needs to catch a train at a certain time, he'll know he has to get to the station by such and such a time to catch the train. So again, I think these become very, can become sort of complex issues. But I think all of those different traditions are all pointing to the same thing. Ultimately, it's suggesting that exactly what you could not be it, but we are so seduced by this egoic identified thinking mind that we've limited ourselves. But so how this ties to the idea of consciousness being not something you experience, but being one of the building block of reality. Can you talk a little bit what in science they call the heart problem of consciousness? Sure, so what these teachings are saying ultimately is that all there is, is consciousness. And I think sometimes it's worth bringing in this terminology. I think it's useful sometimes within this discussion to mention that these terms that I think were first used by the philosopher Immanuel Kant, this term noumenon or noumenal as opposed to phenomenon and phenomenal. So the phenomenal manifest world that we perceive as reality in this tradition is just one side of the coin or it's that which appears within the the planum or the matrix or the the, the noumenon of, of pure consciousness. And so the origins of Taoism, first of all, the Tao that could be named is not the true Tao. So any attempt to use language to articulate this thing is doomed to failure from the start. But that doesn't mean that we don't try to use language as, as pointers towards it. The hard problem of consciousness, which has many different sort of definitions now, but it was at first developed by a man called David Chalmers, a consciousness researcher in Australia. But I think essentially what it's saying is that this subjective quality of consciousness is very mysterious and we're really stuck trying to explain that because we're using consciousness to explain consciousness. So as one of my teachers used to say, a created object cannot understand the pure subjectivity of the creator of that from which it came. There is a sort of a double bind thing going on there. So, of course, there are plenty of reductionists out there who still believe that we can explain consciousness through reductionism. I don't see how we can explain this pure subjectivity through essentially sort of objective means. It couldn't not be present. And, but we find it really hard in that sort of journey, in that analysis, to recognise that pure state of... Ramana talked about the I-I, or an English language has this distinction between the I and the me. So the I, or I-I, the indwelling, the sense of amness before you've even articulated it as I amness. Because as soon as you've articulated it, you've introduced duality and the possibility of not being. So you've been working very hard the last few years 
on a program under regeneration.me where you've been divided our life in six major chapter or silos. So tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it's something like food, health, economy, consciousness, community, and culture. <coughs> yeah. So let's take a few minutes because what I really like about you is your you know, practical solution. You know, you have designed a way to get out of this mess into something more sustainable, more harmonious. So let's get into these six chapters, and then I'd love to leave our, our audience with some practical steps into this new paradigm, into the new Rory paradigm. For me, the journey begins with food, and of course, for those of us living in, in, in urban situations, this can be a, a huge challenge, but I think, again, there's amazing opportunities opening up with rooftop gardening, allotment schemes, vertically integrated indoor farming, and all sorts of interesting possibilities there. So what I noticed a couple of years ago when I was getting increasingly fascinated by the capacity for regenerative agriculture to really play this pivotal role in correcting the climate crisis and carbon cycle, but that also you could apply that same terminology to all sorts of other areas from human health to economics and the circular economy to cultural and community regeneration, but also consciousness itself and the role that things like psychedelics but also our new understandings about consciousness could play in terms of sort of turning the ship around. Given that I think you can then use that criteria to look at any human activity and human industry and establish whether it is linear and degenerative so we have an economics built on sort of extractive growth paradigm so we're taking resources and and basically turning them into waste at ever accelerating speed but the way out of this potentially is to close those loops and turn those linear systems back into cyclical systems and uh, one great analogy around this is like the introduction of the linear sewage system uh, initially in the UK exported around the globe through colonialism adopted around the globe and essentially all of that biomass and nutrient load from the land is going through human digestive processes being mixed with drinkable water and flushed out to the sea whereas it should be going back to the soil to keep a circular process going in perpetuity so going back to the sort of six silos it's quite clear to me now and, and i think to many that the probably the single the most effective way out of our current pickle is actually by reforming the food system and it's about how we deconstruct this modern industrial agribusiness into millions of small and medium scale diversified farms and because the systemic impact we can not only recorrect the carbon cycle very very quickly according to many and you'd only need to increase the average you know, organic soil content with carbon content of most of the world's arable land by something like 0.2% to bring carbon back to pre-industrial levels. We become so fixated on carbon as being the sort of enemy within this. But in fact, what we've done to the world's soils through industrial agriculture and, and the application of all these chemicals is we so severely compromise the ability of the, of the soil to sequester carbon and 
it's only relatively recently we've recognised the degree to which the world's oceans have absorbed all of this excess carbon and in the process acidified. And so the oceans have been this enormous carbon sink and now that's sort of reached its overload. So now the, the knock-on effects are on other global ecosystems is really alarming. Through reforming the food system, we can then also recorrect human health. We can bring our people back towards the land and, and to nature, revive local economies, local communities. So at every single level, this has positive systemic impacts. Now, of course, from a conventional economic perspective, these things might not make sense. But the irony is, of course, that industrial modern agriculture is phenomenally inefficient. It uses something like 10 units of energy to produce one unit of food, calorifically in terms of energy. It's massively dependent on fossil fuel and chemical inputs. But seen within the context of our flawed current economic system, it's regarded as being efficient. So because we've externalised all of those social and environmental costs as, as, as being irrelevant. I noticed that, that actually younger people, a lot of younger people I meet are, are really excited about going into this kind of area. So I think the notion that farming and working the land is something sort of so backward and sort of is deeply erroneous. So I think once, if we can recorrect the food system, we sort of ipso facto recorrect health at all levels, soil health, human health, ecosystem health, global ecological health. And the emphasis there, I think, you know, I'm looking at preventative upstream medicine. And I think what's incredibly important just on the health issue is to recognise that the advances within medical science for treating, for acute interventionist medicine is miraculous. No one is denying that. And no one is denying that antibiotics have saved millions and millions of lives. But I think the really important thing is when treating chronic systemic disease within a complex organism these approaches based on the synthetic pharmaceutical medicines are fundamentally flawed and usually just create more problems in the process so i think the average 60 year old in america or something takes 10 different medications but each medication is dealing with the side effects of the previous medication so i think again a really enlightened future healthcare system would integrate preventative upstream biological medicine, functional medicine for treating chronic systemic illness. But it certainly wouldn't discard the extraordinary advances within acute and interventions. Antibiotics have a role to play. Vaccinations of certain kinds in certain places and for certain people, I'm sure, makes a lot of sense. But the problem is we've polarised everything into just it's this or that and lost all complexity and nuance within the process. There's a, an amazing book, Donut Economics, by a, a, a British academic, Kate Raworth, and it's really, I, I'm far from being an economist, but I find that book unbelievably accessible. It's about it's, circular economy. Yeah, it's called Donut Economics, but it is essentially talking about the circular economy. And a lot of this work was laid out by people like Paul Hawken, who wrote a book called The Ecology of Commerce back in, I think, the early 90s, which is still an incredibly important book in my view. And Herman Daly, I think, in the 1950s, you know, first drew this distinction between growth and development. We're so fixed, you know, growth for the sake of growth is the philosophy of the cancer cell, as Edward Abey said. And something that's growing is just getting bigger. Something that's developing is getting better. And yes, all biological 
organisms have a period of growth, but then the growth stabilizes and they turn to development. What we need to do now to get out of this pickle is always go into a sort of degrowth paradigm. But if we incentivize our economic aspirations with different parameters and different goalposts, then we can step back inside the system. So, for example, at the moment, we tax all the things that are supposed to be good for us, <laughs> like income and jobs, and we don't tax the things that are destroying the planet. Uh, I mean, the last, I don't know if it's changed now, but there was no tax on aviation fuel, but it might still not be, which is why we've had a ridiculous, these, you know, butter from New Zealand is cheaper in Devon than the butter produced at the farm down the road, etc., etc. So the certain, yeah, donut economics, Kate Rawworth's term was really, you yeah, know, what is the sweet spot, the, the ring of the donut that lies between ecological boundaries and parameters and human well-being so essentially yes it's about the sort of metabolic pathways of within an economy so people talk about industrial ecologies and, and, and clusters so the waste product for one industry becomes the raw product for another industry so you eliminate waste from the system at all levels yes so you put the environment at the center of the system rather than consider the externalities Exactly. So the indicators that we have to assess economic prosperity bear no real relevance to, to the actuality because GDP goes up every time there's an accident, a divorce, a hospital bill, an environmental disaster. So all sorts of things that we would conventionally regard as being negative are going, you know, we're doing our sums on a computer with no minus sign, as Paul Hawkins said. So there are, there are numerous economic mechanisms evolved over the last few decades that could feed into this process. But of course, the, the step change that re is required is so dramatic. And what I, like so many of these things, what I see, see happening now, which is so frightening, is, it is what happened with sustainability 20 or 30 years ago that's now become a sort of dirty word, I would say, in, in, in the sort of areas I work in because it's become so co-opted. And you see that happening now with the circular economy and the, you know, the regenerative landscape. Suddenly, all of these CEOs at Davos and stuff are using this kind of language. <clears throat> but and much of what is being presented within these new green deals, etc., has relates to much of what people like myself have been banging on about for 30 years. However, once you sort of dig a bit deeper and scratch below the surface, you see that actually it's been compromised and co-opted along the way. And what we're seeing is just a further iteration of the same thing. And because I don't believe that we can reform these systems in the way that is necessary. And one of my great mentors is a, a, a wonderful biologist and writer in the UK called Colin Tudge, who's written wonderful books about food and farming over the last few decades. And he talks about reform, revolution and renaissance. And reform is just sort of incremental optimization and will never produce the, the sort of systemic change that is required. Revolution, generally a messy business and usually replace one corrupted system with another corrupted system. Whereas really deep, genuine systemic change 
has this sort of renaissance quality about it. So it, 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 it's a rebirthing. It's something that I believe is, 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 is happening and it's happening from the grassroots, from the bottom up. And this is the only way it can happen. What, of course, is slightly alarming, and, but I think a reality is that the momentum within the dominant ideology is so great, rather like the momentum in the climate system, it's hard to see that slowing down or stopping. And it's now, of course, got its added sort of acceleration with, with all of these exponential technologies and this convergence of artificial intelligence with nanotechnology and biotechnology and transhumanism, which in a way is like the sort of final iteration of this sort of reductionist perspective and is seemingly sort of intent on trying to sort of overcome death and and transcend biology altogether that somehow you know, bio, you know these sort of biological organisms are just rather messy and you know just be much easier if we reduced everything to binary ones and zeros <laughs> um so sorry then just then, then so a, a new economics would then inform a, a new sense of community and a new and a new culture and I think the role of art and artists and, and music and everything within all of this is absolutely fundamental. I, I think we need to have much wider, bigger public you know, discussions around you know, technology and applications of technologies. We're always just sold one particular aspect of technology uh, and and then consciousness, which arguably could come at the beginning, but I put at the end because it's in a way the most esoteric and the role that things like psychedelics and ancient you know, uh, spiritual teachings can have on giving us a sort of new metaphysical understanding of our place in the universe. And and what about community? There's a big talk now about, you know, Yuval Harari was very popular right now. He says that, you know, pe people accuse Yuval Harari to, have a, to be pessimistic on human nature. And Yuval says, I'm not pessimistic on human nature. I, I agree that you know, men can be perfectly, you know, generous and, 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 you know, beautiful people. But when you try to organize 100,000 people in city or million people of cities, then, then you have to introduce hierarchy and power. And uh, that's why now you hear more and more people wanting to live in community. You know, yeah. they say 150 to 100 is the right number for you to know everybody intimately. But more than that, then inevitably you become, you, you get into power structure. What's your view on that? I mean, do you think it's even realistic to, to have a, a movement of people leaving the cities? How, how, how does the Silos community in your future Rory paradigm, how does it look like? No, very good, good question. And I think that one thing to bear in mind here is that much of what I might be sort of trying to illustrate might appear is often seen as, oh, this is naive and utopian and idealistic. And yes, maybe it, it, it could be described as, as such, but I, I think this term protopian, that in, if we don't have a collective vision of what we're aspiring towards, we can't begin to take any steps towards it and that we're never going to have the perfect situation. But I think what has propelled me for the last <clears throat> 20, 30 years is if there was to be a human civilization that was in step with biological systems and ecological parameters, these are the features it would have to embody because 
Otherwise, we're just going to repeat the same mistakes. And to be able for that to flourish and take form, it's almost dependent upon the crumbling or collapse of the dominant ideology, which I, I feel will is already in sort of leading to its own demise. The real question is how that's going to happen, how, when it's going to happen, how long, that, yeah, what sort of form that will take. And it's probably not going to be a very comfortable process. And I think if there is to be a sort of future for humanity, it probably will appear in sort of nodal pockets around the globe from a, a, and create this new sort of bottom-up decentralized distributed systems that you can't do it from a top-down sort of technocratic position which is I think what we see unfolding now really is the severity of the ecological crisis is what's really driving this global agenda so it this we're in for a, a bumpy ride for sure but I think and of course, when you look at, you know, we can talk about online communities is, 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 is obviously a huge thing and a, a lot of emphasis going in that direction now. But there are so many dehumanizing trends at work now that are really, really terrifying. And so I think those of us who are able to create a, a, a you know, resilience and solidarity within our local communities, this is fundamental. And I think it only sort of needs two or three people or two or three families within an area who've got a sort of shared aspiration to come together and start incubating some of these ideas and working out what's relevant for them. That is how you kickstart that process. It's almost impossible to do it on your own sitting at home uh, or even as a, a family. And that often I think these experiments and alternative living historically have been doomed to failure because they've separated or isolated themselves from the outside world but as we know all life and living is based on sort of reciprocal exchange connections with the wider world so <clears throat> the challenge i think is to create resilient communities and that embodies many of those has as m much control as possible over their essential human needs so particularly obviously over food and water but obviously there's shelter and transport and communications. So, I mean, I love Bill Mollison's, yeah, the, the permaculture founder in Australia saying the reason why permaculture is seen as so seditious is because it's very hard to control someone who isn't dependent upon you for anything. So we're at this place now where we've abnegated or divested our responsibility and control over so many of these systems to centralized yeah to corporations and the state and what is so urgent now and is increasingly being made difficult for us is to regain that as much control as possible over the over those over those those fundamental aspects of and i i agreed and i think it urban living is 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 problematic on the scale that we have but actually i think what you see sort of within the sort of dominant paradigm is is a is actually a notion of, of increasing urbanization and actually removing people from the land because of course this vision is all about synthetic meat and sort of food that's basically being grown without any kind of 
interaction with biology at all. Yes, yes. I mean, we, 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 put, we put a lot of meat on the fire. We've been together for more than an hour. So I think we're going to wrap it up here. Of course, we'd love Rory to be back and go deeper in some of these ideas. Just as a conclusion, if you had to recommend two, three things for our listeners that I can do today. They can listen to you talking. They, they, they feel inspired of this, you know, contributing to, to a new paradigm. What would be two or three practical things they can do today? Well, I'm particularly taken with a book I'm reading at the moment, which I, I, I'd have to say is one of the most important books I think I've read in a long time. And it's called A Small Farm Future by somebody called Chris Smage, S-M-A-G-E, published by Chelsea Green Publishing. And it's really very fascinating analysis of the role that small farms and local economies and all of these things we've just been touching on but it's really really compelling stuff i think start to sort of really look at these possibilities within your local community and i think this wherever you are whether it's rural or urban if you can find people close by who are resonant with this stuff and if you can just start getting together and look at the you know, it could be a, a community composting initiative or a, a community orchard or a local just a sort of group sort of food buying group where you sort of pull together your resources to 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 buy your from local suppliers and producers i think that, that this is critical really you know getting getting on top of your local food system as much as possible or engage with it as, as, as much as possible. I think, and I think the, the human health issues are obviously just so important at the moment. And I think there's, there's so many things we can all be doing for free to boost our immune systems and to basically kind of deal with what's going on and what might be coming down the lines. For instance, the other day, somebody pointed out to me that there's now research to suggest that just 20 minutes of walking barefoot on the ground reduces cellular inflammation by 20% in 20 minutes or something. There's now all this research to show the, the, the extraordinary positive impacts on our, on our physiology by just walking in, 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 in the woods. Uh, so all of these things that we sort of intuitively know are good for us, but have not been previously validated by the conventional sort of scientific method, they are now by sort of the new biology. Thank you very much, Rory, for your time. We covered a lot of ground, lots of dense ideas. We'll have other opportunity to go deeper. Thank you very much for following. Anything else you want to conclude with, Rory? No, just a, thank you very much indeed, Giancarlo. It was a lovely opportunity and I'd, I'd love to do more of it in the future if possible. And the regeneration.me is, is my website and do you can, anybody can get in touch with me through that if they so desire. And thank you very much. And you will also find some of the audio file in Mango TV blog. Some of Rory's audio file and some of his article on Mango TV. Thank you for following. See you next time.